Today we're on page 15 in your notes for When Trouble Comes. You can obtain those notes by clicking Class Notebook, the button that's underneath your media player. You may notice that there are a number of pages left in your notebook, yet today is the last session. That's because the last several pages are mostly material that you can read and benefit from on your own. So they're not something that we're going to cover. Those are for your own use. Page 15 is our final lesson in section 2, which is about the purposes that God has for us in allowing suffering in our lives. We've seen that there's the inward, the forward, and the outward direction. Today we're going to see the upward direction of suffering. In terms of the priority of these four directions, this one, the upward direction, is actually first because it has to do with how we see God and how God uses suffering in order for us to see Him more accurately and more clearly. So it's saved for last, not because it's less important, in fact, quite the contrary, it's the most important. And God has a number of things that He wants to accomplish in terms of our view of Him when He allows our suffering. The first one is at the top of page 15, and it's that He desires that we see His true character. Sometimes God's true character, what God is really like, is obscured by circumstances that come into our lives, and God desires that those obscurities, those distortions of what He is like, be removed. You see on page 15 there the example of Belinda. Belinda is a relatively young woman who had struggled for most of her life with things that had happened to her when she was a teenager. She and her family were members of a conservative, Bible-believing church, and she was part of the youth group at that church. The church got a new youth pastor, and over time, that youth pastor began abusing her and other teenage girls in the group. Some years later, after they were young adults, one of the young ladies came forward, then more came forward, and the horrible truth was uncovered. But it didn't end there, as it never does, really, in cases of abuse. She was adversely affected by what happened to her for years, including after she was married. She found it very difficult to engage in intimacy with her husband as a result of what she had gone through, for example. But it also affected her view of God, because she came to believe that she was only good and only accepted if she was approved by someone in authority over her. And in her case, that approval came through doing what this sinful youth pastor brought her into. But it stayed with her, this idea, I'm no good as I am. I'm only good if I gain the approval of those who are over me. And that's a common theme for people who have gone through abuse. They believe they're no good. And if they were good enough, then they wouldn't have gone through this abuse, they think. So there must be something about them that's not measuring up. They're also convinced that they need to somehow please others, and so they find themselves in a cycle of relationships trying to gain approval. Thankfully, Belinda sought biblical counsel, and through that, she came to see God in a different way. She learned that God's approval is given to her through Christ, and as a result, she does not have to perform for His approval or, frankly, for anyone else's. God delivered her from that distorted view of Himself. Now we say in the summary, if God lavishes mercy on the wounded, we should certainly do the same. Sin is sin and should never be condoned, but sinners need a Redeemer, and our Redeemer saves 
by loving. So one of the things that God does, as we've seen in prior lessons, is He uses what we've gone through in the lives of others. But we can only be used that way if we've had some measure of healing for what we've gone through ourselves. And that's what the next paragraph is about. It says, when we, like Job, see God for who He is, we can stop blaming Him for our pain and suffering. We learn to accept both good and bad from the hand of the Lord. We can come to know God's power when we see Him move in an impossible situation and meet our personal need. Possibly, St. Augustine had this in mind when he said, In my deepest wound, I saw your glory, and it dazzled me. Now, all of this, though, raises a question. When a child or a teenager is mistreated, it should, as I'm sure it does for all of us, wound our hearts, and our hearts go out to the abused, and then our minds engage, and we ask ourselves, how can that happen? When that happens, why doesn't God stop that suffering? Now, we've talked in prior sessions about why God does not eliminate all suffering, but there's still this question, an ongoing question, not only for Christians, but really for anyone because everyone has a belief system of some sort, whether it's the Christian worldview or not. Why is there evil, and why is evil so pervasive? And in particular, why does evil happen to those who've done nothing wrong? It's a question that every human being, because we are moral beings, has to ask and try to answer. And the Bible answers it by answering the question that's behind the question. When we ask, why does God allow something or we're really asking, what is God like? Is God a monster who delights in seeing evil done, even on the most vulnerable and helpless? So ultimately, the question, why does this happen, is a question about, what kind of God are you? Are you a God who cares? Are you a God who really does love? Are you a God who is really tender and merciful when these kinds of things are allowed to happen? That's the kind of question that we're asking. That's the underlying question. And the Bible does answer that underlying question, and it answers that question very directly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's in Christianity alone that you have God himself coming to earth as man and God himself enduring the suffering of a fallen world. So as we ask, what kind of God is this? The answer is, this is the kind of God who comes, endures suffering, and endures that suffering not because of anything He has done, but because of His love and mercy directed toward us. It has sometimes been said that love is the final apologetic. Apologetics is the discipline in theology that's about defending the faith. Apologia, not apologia, as a church in Arizona is misnamed. Apologia is a Greek word in your New Testament that means to defend the faith. And apologetics is defending the truth of Christianity. And so it's said that the final apologetic, the final defense of Christianity is love. The love of Christians shown to others who hate them and persecute them is a final apologetic for the truth and the reality of Christianity. But ultimately, that love apologetic is seen in God's love given in Jesus. Because God became man and he endured the difficulties and the heinousness of a fallen world himself on our behalf. 
So I encourage you to do this. As you ask the question, why does God let these things happen? Recognize that you're actually asking another question, and that is, what is God like? And Scripture answers that by saying, behold your God, the character of your merciful, loving Father God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Friends, God does all that He does and allows all that He allows in order to show what He is like. We see something of that in a passage in Romans chapter 9, chapter 9 and verse 22, where it says, uh, and what it says is at first startling, but then not so much once it's, it's analyzed. It says there, quote, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, when it says that there are people prepared for destruction, it sounds like God makes people for the very purpose of sending them to hell. But what's interesting is the verb that's translated prepared, as in prepared for destruction, is in what's called the passive voice in Greek. So it's not God who prepared them for their destiny. God is not the subject doing the preparing. As one commentator says, there is the very clear sense in this use of the passive voice to relieve God of the responsibility and to put it fully on the shoulders of those who refuse to heed His word and believe in His Son. The preparation of people for destruction is done by them. It's done by us as sinners. But when the passage goes on to speak of those who are prepared for glory, that verb is not passive, but rather it's active. And the clear subject doing the action of preparing for glory is God Himself. So when people go to hell, it's because of what they do. And when people go to heaven, it's because of what God does. But in both cases, God is showing His character. He's showing what He is like. In his dealings with the unbelievers, the passage says, he makes known his patience, but also his wrath and his power. And in his dealing with unbelievers, he shows his mercy. In everything that happens, good and bad, we are to see and learn something of the character of God. In all that God allows, and in all that God actively does, he is demonstrating his holiness to judge sin, but also his love and mercy and his grace to those who turn to him. Now back to page 15 then in your notes. God desires that we see His true character and that we see all of His character, His wrath, but His mercy as well. But He also desires, secondly, to prepare us for a blessing. And the example is God's blessings to Job. You remember the story of everything being taken from Job. And then at the end of that story, God restored him to beyond what he had had before. We see in Scripture that often, after a time of testing, God provides blessing in some form. In Job's case, it included restoration of his material possessions. It's not always the form the blessing takes, material blessing, but God does produce some form of blessing out of the difficulty that he points us to in our difficulties, pointing us to what he is like. So one of the key passages listed under that point in your notes is Genesis 50 and the end of the story of Joseph. As with Job, it ended well. 
God allowed this difficulty to come into the life of Joseph, being sold into slavery, but in his providence, he brought Joseph to a position of prominence in Egypt, you'll remember. Years later, the very brothers who treacherously had sold him and forgot about him and had no idea what had become of him, they find themselves before him in Egypt, asking for food due to a famine that had gripped the land. When they realize that they're now before Joseph, they undoubtedly expect to be killed for what they had done to him years earlier. And he's now in a position so that he can order that if he so chooses. But also, they know that that's what they would do if they were in his shoes. So they project their own character onto him, and they assume that they're toast at this point. But Joseph instead utters the famous words of Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. He then says that this good God accomplished, the the good that God accomplished was, quote, the saving of many lives. That is, many people were saved from starvation because God gave Joseph the foresight to prepare for the famine, and he placed Joseph in position to distribute the bounty to those who needed it, turned out including his own family. So the good that God intended was a blessing. The good was for Joseph to be a blessing. Not only blessed himself, as Joseph was, but Joseph became a conduit of blessing to many others as a result of this. And often that's what God will do in the midst of difficulty. At the bottom of page 15 it says, The character of God compels him to be a generous lover. He deliriously desires to bless his children. His blessings are never to be seen as indulgent. At the same time, our God knows that an ungrateful heart is ill-prepared for his unimaginable blessings. Unless he prepares our hearts and remakes our souls through the sting of suffering, we might selfishly bask in his blessings without any sense of humility or gratitude. God loves to bless, but when he chooses to bless, it's often preceded by a time of humbling so that the recipient of those blessings will return thanks to God. And you see an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. After God gave his law to Israel, the context is, you may remember, that in Deuteronomy 5, God gave the Ten Commandments. Then in chapter 6, he gave the famous passage that says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. Jesus would later say that this is the first and greatest commandment. And the passage in Deuteronomy 6 goes on to say, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hands, and you bind them on your foreheads and on your gates. God is saying, remember all of this, especially the primary command to love me above all else, because now you're going to go in and take possession of the land that I've given you, and you'll be governed by the law that I've handed down to you, but it's going to be easy for you to forget all of that when you get into the land of blessing. And then you get to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 11, and it deals with this issue very directly. It says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands. When you eat and you are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and when you settle down, Your silver and gold increases and all that you have is is multiplied. When all that happens, it's going to be very easy for you to forget the Lord your God and for you to come to believe that you are the one 
who has produced these things, that you are the one who has made these things happen. You will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And he was the one who led you in Deuteronomy 8, it says in verse 15, through a vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and its scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and to test you. Now, do you see what God is, is doing? He's reminding them that before you take possession of my promised blessing, you have to remember it is I who brought you here. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And while you were in the wilderness, I was preparing you for a time of blessing. So when you go into the land and you have this blessing that I promised to you, remember what I brought you through. He's having to remind them and us because it is our propensity to forget the goodness of the Lord and take upon ourselves the credit for what he does. God desires that we see his character, that we prepare, that he prepare us for the blessings that he gives. And now thirdly, on page 16, he desires to give believers dying grace. With the exception of the possibility that we will be raptured and the Lord's second coming will be set in motion, we're all going to die. We'll all die, and suffering is one way that we're prepared for that. The truth is, friends, dying is not only not the worst thing that could happen to you if you know Jesus, it's actually the best thing that could happen. Now, I'm not suggesting that we take matters into our own hands and go and end it all. But I am saying that when God chooses to take us home as a child of His, then we have eternity with Him to look forward to. So in the life of the believer, dying is not something to be dreaded. Dying is something, in fact, to look forward to. It's my home going. And in suffering, God is preparing us to see that. Suffering keeps us from being too attached to our inferior existence here. Now, you see the example there on page 16 of dying from a child's perspective. Let me read to you what some kids said about their view of dying. A group of researchers found that even elementary school-aged kids have ideas about what it means to die. One young boy named Jimmy shared his view of death. He said, when you die, they bury you in the ground. Your soul goes to heaven, but your body can't go to heaven because it's too crowded up there already. Judy said, only the good people go to heaven. The other people go to where it's hot all the time, like in Florida. And then John responded saying, maybe I'll die someday, but I hope I don't die on my birthday because it's no fun to celebrate your birthday if you're dead. And then Marcia offered another perspective. She said, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher's there too. Now on page 16, it says God's preparing us for dying grace because we might see death as a step backward. But in fact, our human tendency is to pray that a loved one will live. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in Scripture that suffering may actually be God's way of bringing a Christian home to heaven. He wants us to understand that death is not a step backward, but rather a step forward. Now we've seen that in the end, God works everything out in conformity with his, his will, and so God may bring this suffering into our, our lives, and this suffering may 
produce the doorway to heaven. And we've seen previously in our series in the book of Philippians that when Paul wrote that book, he was under house arrest unjustly for no other reason other than preaching the gospel. He's chained to a Roman guard day and night. He's waiting to find out what the verdict is going to be for him. He may have but he may be executed. He really doesn't know. And so he's waiting to hear the word on that. And he writes this in chapter 1 and verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now notice that whether by life or by death. He doesn't know which one is going to happen. But then he goes on to say, but this will mean fruitful labor for me if I live. So what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue so that I can be of good use for the Lord and your lives. He's saying, I don't know for sure, but in either case, if I die, I'm with the Lord. If I stay, it'll be fruitful labor. You could summarize these verses from Paul by saying, even though I'm under house arrest and I'm suffering, it's all good. It's all good because I may die and go to heaven, or if I remain, I, may, I remain serving the Lord and I'll have fruitful labor if he chooses to keep me here. And then in the middle of page 16, you see that God desires to reward those who endure. The roller coaster is the example there. Now, in my younger days, I was a roller coaster person. If you're a roller coaster person, you go to Cedar Point or wherever, and you devise your strategy for knocking other people out of the way to get to the newest and the biggest roller coaster. That's usually on the back 40 somewhere, and so you're trying to hustle to get there, and other people are trying to hustle and get there, and you're elbowing people out of the way, you know, in a Christian sort of way, saying Jesus loves you as you, as you make your way through. And you're going along, and you and your friends are all excited about it, and you see it in the distance. There it is. All this tangled metal gleaming in the distance as you're still about a mile away. And then you see a sign that says, line for the anaconda, or whatever it is, begins here. Two-hour wait. Here you are, all excited, but now you have to wait for two hours to get on the thing. When you do, you're on it for 45 seconds. If you're not a roller coaster person, then just plug in whatever pleasure you get really jazzed about and you're willing to sacrifice for and to pursue. But in fact, it lasts only a short period of time. But God says the inverse about our suffering here and now and then what we receive later. God says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, quote, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So here you are, you're willing to endure two hours for 45 seconds. And God is saying that your three score and 10, your, your 70 years or 80 years or 90 years that I give you here is a blip on the screen compared to eternity. And God rewards according to the passages that we have listed on page 16. He rewards those who endure and those who show his character in that endurance and that suffering for this relatively brief time on earth. 
In fact, look at the very last sentence at the bottom of the page. It says, God takes pleasure in how we respond to suffering. And he has promised us a reward for our suffering. Now notice the how we respond part of that. It brings us to the last purpose that God has at the top of page 17. The way God wants us to respond is in such a way that he is glorified. Now we say the word glory and we say that we should glorify God, bring glory to God, do all to the glory of God. But those become just Christian buzzwords if we don't think about what, they, what, we, what we mean by them. So I remind you that glory is this. It's the display of God's character. So when we say, I want to glorify God with my life, what we're saying is, in my life, I want to display the character of God. And here, when we say God desires, desires to be glorified, and he uses suffering as part of the means by which we do that, it's saying that in the midst of our difficulty, God wants his character and his supreme worth to be displayed by us in the midst of that. When a Christian says to his or herself and says to those around them by their words and by their actions that in this difficulty there is something, no really someone, that is much more important than what I'm going through, namely Christ, then that brings glory to God. That shows that who he is in his character is worth more than convenience, worth more than pleasure, worth more than anything else that happens to me. So that's what we mean when we say God desires to be glorified. He desires to see his character and the value of his character displayed in all of our circumstances, including our suffering. Now, the remaining pages in your notebook are things that you can read and do on your own, and I encourage you to do that. And I want to thank you for spending these seven weeks with me looking at these important teachings in God's Word regarding how we're to view our lives when, not if, trouble comes. And I wanted to do this series because we find ourselves in a once-in-a-lifetime circumstance with a pandemic and a very troubled economy. And I hope these lessons have helped to fortify you for whatever lies ahead because you know that God has His good purposes for all that He allows in the lives of his children. Now next Sunday, Pastor Larry and I are going to have a, a Q&A time during this time slot so that we can discuss some of the current events that are engulfing our nation and provide a, a biblical perspective on those. Now you won't be able to send in questions live. Those will be questions that we'll be going back and forth on, but we hope that it'll be a time that will be of help to you. So plan to tune in same time next week for that. Let's pray and ask God to help us this week. Our Father, we thank you that we've been able to have these seven sessions together to look at this topic of when trouble comes. We thank you that you have given us your guidebook for life, the Bible, and in it you have given us a realistic view of life in a fallen world. And you tell us that it is indeed when trouble comes, not if it will come. And you have told us that it comes in all shapes and sizes, that it comes in various forms. And so all of us are in a trial, we've come out of a trial, we're going into a trial. And we live right now in this moment at a very unusual time when all of us, every one of us, are experiencing some of the same things and some extraordinary things. And so we need desperately to have your perspective on how we're to endure those things and what it is you are seeking to accomplish in the midst of those. So thank you for instructing us from your word. I thank you for those who have faithfully 
tuned in to hear these teachings from the Word of God. Help us, Lord, to not be hearers only, but to be doers then of the Word, to apply these things that we have learned to the circumstance at hand. Help us to do that this day and this week. Go with us as we seek to represent you in all that you assign to us. Grant us safety until we're able to look into your word again together next week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for watching. Have a great week serving the Lord.